If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's some uh, there underneath the seats. We'd encourage you to, to grab one of those and, and take that with you if you don't have one. We're going to be in the Word this morning as we've made our way through Luke's Gospel and Lord willing, finish chapter 18 and, and step into chapter 19 a little bit. So as you're turning there, let's only begin. It often bothered me that when the 12 apostles were listed, I was always the last to be named. But I took some comfort from something that Jesus said about the last being first and the first being last. And if that turned out to be true, I would, it would be bad news for Peter, but good news for me. Given my position at the end of the line, I was always looking out for ways to advance my cause. And, and given my ability with numbers, it seemed natural that I should offer to serve as treasure for our ministry. Accounting is not a glamorous work, but I knew its importance. Holding the purse strings would give me a, a certain power over others, and I saw this role as an opportunity not to be missed. I was always looking to attract the kind of people who could help bring our ministry to a broader audience. However, to my growing frustration, Jesus had a habit of letting our best opportunities slip away. The first time it happened was when a highly successful rich man came to ask for help. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit life? My pulse quickened. Here was a man who clearly had the means to fund our entire operation. I was already counting on his money. If it's, a, if it's in the bag already, if, if Jesus plays this right, I thought, we will be funded for life. Jesus started out by pointing the man to the commandments, and the, and the man seemed pleased. I've been doing all these things since I was a boy. Then Jesus said, you lack one thing. This was the moment. I held my breath, waiting for Jesus to tell him that, that life could be his if he would just join us. And that is exactly what Jesus did say. Come, follow me. But then he blew it, both for the man and for us. And what he said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. What good would this man be to our group now if he offloaded all of his assets before he joined? The man's response was predictable. His face fell. He got up from his knees and walked away from Jesus. Looking at this from my position as treasure, I could only see it as a wasted opportunity. If only Jesus could see from my point of view, this ministry would finally take off. As a lengthy quote from the third chapter of Colin Smith's book, Heaven So Near, So Far. The entire book's written from the vantage point of Judas. Sometimes we can learn things from those that miss it completely. What was Judas living for other than an earthly military movement? He wanted to see this movement succeed. His hope was that Jesus had come to overthrow these evil rulers and to establish now a good and right government, to make all things right. And he gave himself to this coming Messiah. We have seen Jesus call himself a certain name throughout Luke's gospel, the Son of Man. Over and over in this book, he, he calls himself this. And no one else calls him that. He calls himself the Son of Man. 
The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, Luke 5.24. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Luke 6.5. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Luke 7.34. Son of Man is, is Daniel's label for the one who comes before God to receive authority over the nations, from Daniel chapter 7. And now Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man, has come. But how does he come? Does he come with an army of angels? Does he come on clouds of heaven? Does he come with a blaze of glory? Does he come to overpower Rome? No, he comes eating and drinking. He comes healing. He comes teaching, meek and mild, gracious and patient. The Jews of Jesus' day would have said the Son of Man would come to vindicate the righteous and defeat God's enemies. They didn't expect him to come and seek and save the lost. They would have said the Son of Man was to come with glory and power. They would have never said that he would come over to a sinner's house to eat and drink. They were pursuing something else. They were placing their hope in vindication now and not later. They couldn't see it. They were blinded by their earthly desires. They were blinded by their selfish pursuits. What are you pursuing right now in life that you're unsure will actually satisfy you like you hope it will? We're all pursuing something right now. Are you positive that what you're pursuing will bring the satisfaction that you've been longing for? Judas was pursuing earthly power and authority. And when he realized he couldn't get that, that Jesus wouldn't give what he wanted, he turns his back on him. What are you pursuing? Where are you placing your hopes? We continue on our journey through Luke's gospel. As I said earlier in Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 31 through the rest of the chapter, and we're going to sneak into chapter 19 just for a few moments this morning. In the first point, we're going to see the king will be killed in verses 31 through 34, and we'll see the misunderstanding of the disciples. And then the second point, the blind will receive sight in verses 35 through 43, and then we'll come to the third one, and that's into chapter 19, and we'll see little old Zacchaeus, right? Climbing a tree because he can't see. Each one of these points to the coming kingdom of God, what Christ will do through the cross. And each one really kind of picks up on a little bit of blindness and sight and seeing. And so I hope you see that theme as we walk through this. But here's the main idea this morning. If you have write down anything from this sermon or pay attention, pay attention to this. God's kingdom comes when Jesus, who has died and been raised to life, opens the eyes of the spiritually blind and calls people to repentance and faith. God's kingdom comes when Jesus, who has died and been raised to life, opens the eyes of the spiritually blind and calls people to repentance and faith. And we'll see that theme throughout this. Our Messiah reveals sight to the blind and gives new life to those who are lost. So if you haven't already, turn there in Luke 18. Look at verses, uh, we're going to look at the first point. The king will be killed. 
He begins here by, by setting the stage of, of what's going to happen. If you remember, the, the journey to Jerusalem is about to reach its end where Jesus will die. We've, we've been on this focused journey, this, this turning point since Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 where, where Jesus says he's going to turn and go towards Jerusalem. And here in this chapter, we're going we're gonna to face the blindness of those that walk with him and, and come to him. The prophet Isaiah, just to set the stage, spoke of God deliberately blinding the eyes of his rebellious people as an act of judgment on their hardness of heart. And you can read about that in Isaiah chapter 6, chapter 29, chapter 56. And and that sight would only come when God's Savior would bring the light. So Jesus is coming to do this. And so look at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is the fourth time that Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to suffer. We're going up to Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. It's present tense, which conveys the sense of urgency and immediacy. We're going now. And the crucifixion of Jesus is coming. It's only days away. And this is, again, what Luke has been preparing us since chapter 9. And for the first time in Luke's gospel, he says that he's been to be handed over to the Gentiles. So the, the entire human race now will be complicit in his death. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. And and the verbs in verses 32 and 33 both itemize and, and so intensify what Jesus will face in Jerusalem. His death there would not be an unplanned tragedy. We read about tragedies now that are unplanned. This was not one of those. He knew what was to, to happen. He, Jesus knew exactly why he was going there. He, he knew exactly what he would face. He knew exactly what was required to purchase sinners. And Jesus was absolutely confident of what the Bible said of his death. He knew that it would all come true. What the psalmist says in Psalm 22.1, he would be forsaken by God. And later in Psalm 22.7, he would be mocked by his enemies. In Psalm 22:15, he would be tormented by thirst. In Psalm 22:18, he would be pierced through his hands and his feet. In Isaiah 53:3, he would be despised and rejected by men, wounded for transgressions, crushed for iniquities, until finally, as we read in Isaiah 53:12, he was poured out into death. It was not that Jesus had to die, but, but he had to die this way. It was not only that he had to die, he, he did it this way. It was It was prophesied long ago, and Jesus came to fulfill that. And if you want to understand Christianity, friends, these verses are most central. And if you're a visitor here with us this morning, you're just, you've joined, you're curious about Christianity, you're you're curious about what the church believes and what it teaches, about what happens in the church, I want you to know you're most welcome here. Every Sunday we gather to worship, and you can join us anytime. I'm thankful that you're here. But if you're wanting to understand Christianity, you need to listen and look at these verses because this is what it's built on. Jesus Christ came to die. 
His purpose for living with us was to die. It wasn't his only purpose, but it was his chief purpose. To die as an atonement for sinners like you and like me. And he taught us over and over in the Gospels that his death would be an atonement for sin. What is atonement? The word we use atonement means quite literally at one meant. Atonement must occur for two warring parties to be made at one. A sacrifice that is given in the place of someone else that makes things right between one party and the other. And that's why Jesus came to earth. He came to atone for your sins against God. That was his intended purpose. You and I, by our sins against others, but by primarily against God, we are at war with God. And we deserve judgment and condemnation. And we can't dig ourselves out of this hole that we've made. We need someone else. We need a rescuer. We need atonement. And Jesus came to do that for us. He came intending to die, and this didn't come as a surprise to him. He came to fulfill those verses that I mentioned in Psalm 22 and what Chris read in in Isaiah 53. He knew what he was doing. He understood what the prophecy said, and he came to fulfill it. And now he teaches his disciples yet again. But if this doesn't strike you this morning, friends, take heart, because the disciples didn't understand either. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Friend, faith is a gift of God. And so we pray here for people to have faith and that God would give it so they understand the gospel. We know that for people to have faith, God has to give it to them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Have you ever wondered to yourself, Christian, if you, if you think back and look back over your life, how many times you heard the gospel? You heard it over and over growing up maybe, perhaps hundreds, even, even maybe a thousand times before you finally became a Christian? It wasn't that that person finally had enough wisdom to open your mind's eye. No, friend, that was God. And why didn't you understand the first time? It's because you were a hell-bound sinner, living how you pleased, focused on yourself. You were spiritually dead. You needed to be made alive. Just a few verses early in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Dead people don't place their faith in things. They need life first. And God came and gave you faith to believe. And you responded and trust and believed in Jesus Christ. This is exactly why we pray for faith for people to believe in Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you, parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, spouses here, and you have that one, maybe more than one. 
and you've been wanting them to be saved. And your heart's desire is that they would come to know Jesus. Friend, you cannot manufacture faith for them. You can't do it. You cannot gift them faith. Only God can do that. And so if you've fallen into a rut thinking that you're, you're, you're going to somehow manipulate words and convince them of this, or maybe subtle guilt trips is what, what the trick is for spiritually turning them. Friend, no, it's God that gives faith. And so pray that God would give them faith to believe and leave it in God's hands. But keep praying. He's the one that gives faith. God is the one that does the saving. And God is the one who chooses and chooses the least likely that we will see this morning. Because God gets the glory in that, not us. God chooses and God draws us together in Christ. And as a church family who have covenanted together through our commitment to Christ and to one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to give to one another. And in that, friends, we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the beauty of what Christ has done. Have you ever thought just for a moment what a strange bunch of people we are? That we wouldn't normally and naturally choose one another. But it's because of the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has done that it's made us a family. It's only through Christ. It's only through his saving work that we're joined together. And our bond here as a church is ultimately Jesus Christ. Our bond is is not in our favorite sports team. Our bond is not in our favorite politician. Our bond is not even in in this country. Our bond is Jesus Christ and him alone. And this comes through the work of God, opening our eyes of faith to believe. And so we pray to that end. But here we read, he's hiding this from his disciples. They don't understand yet. Jesus' plain words about what's going to happen in Jerusalem have no traction as disciples. And we should be able to understand this. As sinners ourselves, being wrapped up in our own weaknesses, we should understand. Some of us can think of our own blind spots that we've had about the truth of the Bible, and it took the Lord years to bring us to, the, to that point where we can understand what it meant. And then we think back, we look back and think, why did it take me so long? See, Jesus' design, I believe, is to awaken the 12. And eventually they would know what he was saying, but not right now. They wouldn't see it until God would make it plain to them. Their blindness would be removed only after Jesus was risen from the dead as he opened the scriptures with them, as we will look at, Lord willing, in chapter 24. But Jesus, again, takes the opportunity to teach them here. Sometimes, friends, God hides things from his children until they're ready to understand it. Sometimes we're not fully prepared to understand and God takes us one step at a time because if he unloaded everything on us at one moment, we couldn't bear it. We couldn't handle it. And God is gracious in those moments to hide from us things that we can't quite understand yet. But what's striking to me as we end this first point is, is looking back as we read what Jesus is going to do, looking back to the rich ruler earlier in the chapter and his refusal to give up everything to follow Jesus. 
because what we read here is Jesus was willing to give up everything to die for us. That's striking. He didn't call that ruler to do anything close to what he was about to do. And Jesus was willing. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus did what was humanly impossible. And he did it for all those who would turn from sin and trust in him. So first is the king will be killed. Second, the blind will receive sight. Look at verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The, the blind man here was, was tuned in to what was happening around him. And he hears this commotion, possibly, and, and, and asks what's, what's meant by this. And they respond that it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by. But he doesn't cry out with that name. He doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. No, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what we, not, what we see here is this blind man can see before Jesus restores his sight. He stands in stark contrast to the preceding cast of characters, all of whom were blind. The Pharisees in verses 11 and 12, the rich ruler who had imagined that he, he had kept all the commandments, and even the disciples who couldn't understand what Jesus had plainly told him. Now he calls out, son of David, which is the Old Testament messianic title of the coming king. The son of David was prophesied to be the dependent of King David who would rule on David's throne forever. And the scriptures prophesied that the son of David would fulfill all of God's plans for his people. And by calling Jesus son of David, the blind man was acknowledging him as savior whom God had long ago promised to send. The term son of David, that title is dripping with meaning because it was declaring in that moment Jesus as Israel's royal king, David's rightful heir, and God's righteous Messiah. Other people saw Jesus as a preacher or a miracle worker, but this man saw him. This blind man saw him before others did. He saw him as his coming Savior. He doesn't respond yet. Look at verse 39. Those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. His persistence in calling out, even when the crowds tell him, just be quiet, should remind us of the story we looked at last week of the persistent widow. She continued to call out until she got what she wanted. And here this man persists in calling to Jesus for help, calling out for mercy. And he cries out to Jesus to save him. And friends, don't you find yourself needing to raise this cry again and again in your own life because of doubts and fears that creep into your own soul? Or maybe because of the pain and suffering in your in your life, in your marriage, in your family, or because of the pressures of, of school or work, or because maybe of the unknown status of what's going to happen in life. No, no ideal living situation, no future spouse, or no clear understanding of the next career. And you, you feel it in your soul to cry out the same way 
And is this blind man? God, have mercy on me. Do we ever get beyond crying out to God for mercy? No, we don't. We should never get beyond this. There will never be a time on this side of heaven that we are beyond crying out to God for mercy. Well, in verse 40, Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. This question of Jesus seems best understood as a way to to draw out his heart, to, to verbalize now his trust in Jesus and to make his request known to him. Really, Jesus' question to this blind man is, is quite a searching question, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that this morning? What is most pressing in your life today? The blind man says, Lord, let me recover my sight. The blind beggar, in his words, are a simple expression of both his need and also his confidence that Jesus is the one. That he truly is the son of David. Who can really help him? And in verse 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Luke again uses the verb sozo here to, for the word save in this phrase as he did earlier, which encompasses physical as well as spiritual health. They're lumped into one here, and this man is physically and spiritually saved in that moment. His faith that made him well. The, the blind man was seen by believing. It was Jesus who made him well, but the, but the man received Jesus by faith. B.B. Warfield was right when he said that it's not even faith, strictly speaking, that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, in Christ himself. Jesus is what saved this man. And he sees with the eyes of faith. He believes that if he sought Jesus, the Lord, he would reward him. He hoped for some of those blessings prophesied in the Old Testament to fall upon him. And he would not be silenced. He would continue to cry out to God. He he won't let the crowds shush him. He was persistent. And he walks away following Jesus, glorifying God. True faith produces joy in God and a commitment to follow Jesus forever. It says there in verse 43, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And how do the people respond? All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. See, all these people knew this man. They had seen him before. They knew he was a blind beggar. They had passed by him, I'm sure, multiple times. They knew he was blind. And they saw him get up and follow Jesus. They knew it wasn't false, it wasn't a joke, it wasn't a con, it wasn't a magic trick. It was real, as real as the chair you're sitting on. They knew what had happened, and they praised God. They could clearly see what, had done, what God had done in his life, and they praised him. And now Jesus' fame, as you can imagine, is spreading even more now. 
This man's life has changed, not because he, he, had, he had regained his sight, but because he now saw his Savior and he's going to follow him. I read of a story this week of Fanny Crosby, the great hymn, hymn writer who was blind from a young age. A well-meaning visitor one day lamented of her blindness and told her he wished she had sight. He said he was sure that she, was, she, she too wished that she could see, and Fanny Crosby said, oh no. She said she trusted Christ with her life. Blindness, she would later write, cannot keep the sunlight of hope from a trustful soul. She continued to have a joyful perspective on her life and would later write this, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life and I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might have not sung the hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Have you ever held your eyes tight? You ever gone to the eye doctor, you know, and, they, and you've got to press one eye? And if you do it too tight, you know what happens, right? When you open that eye up again, it's kind of blurry, and it takes a second to refocus, and the light comes back in. She, Fanny Crosby wrote about this. She said, if at my birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be made blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. That's what this blind man experienced. His, slow, his eyes slowly adjusting to the light and the, the newness of life. Once filled with darkness, now filled with light, and he can see. And who's the first person he sees? Jesus. He sees his Savior. Well, the king will be killed, the blind will receive sight, and third, the lost will be saved. Bernie Madoff died earlier this year. Boy, that's quite the transition for where I came from. <laughs> I didn't see that when I was writing. Bernie Madoff died earlier this year in federal prison. He was famously known, or perhaps infamously known, for stealing from investors to line his own pockets. His massive Ponzi scheme defrauded investors of an estimated $65 billion racking up huge losses for banks, pension funds, and individuals who invested their entire life savings in his investment securities. Thousands of people lost their life savings through the deceitfulness of one man. As you can imagine, he was not well-liked. How would you feel if you invested your entire life savings in his investment securities only to find out that it's all gone? Bernie Madoff was a real sleazeball. And we come to chapter 19. Jesus enters the last major city. He entered Jericho, verse 1, and passing through. In verse 2, and behold, there was a, na a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was more than just a common sinner. As a wealthy 
city on a major trade route. Jericho was one of three major centers for collecting Israel's taxes. Not surprisingly, collecting taxes, there had been uh, this, had made this man very wealthy. It says here Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, meaning he was in charge and he was the richest. He was ultimately the middleman, really, skimming proceeds off the customs revenue on its way to Rome. He was rich. He was the kingpin of Jericho tax cartel. Zacchaeus was a slime ball, too. This is a very well-known story, right? If you grew up in church, you, you sang the song, right? Who wants to sing it for me this morning? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. All right, we'll stop there, yes. I mean, as you grow up, you're like, oh, yes, you know, happy song, thinking through. He was not a sweet, cuddly man. And you need to understand that. He was a a sleazeball. I mean, we can easily lose sight of what kind of man he truly was. He was a rotten thief. He was a traitor to his own people. He overtaxed people and pocketed the difference. He made himself rich on others and he was despised. I mean, those people that lost everything to Bernie Madoff, you know, they that felt how they felt towards him. This is how his own people felt towards Zacchaeus, and yet the government said it was okay. They, they allowed it. And so Zacchaeus hears of Jesus coming. Perhaps it's the commotion, or maybe he had heard what Jesus had done earlier with the blind man. In verse 3, and when he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And friends, this is one problem I've never had. I think this verse, though, is full of meaning. He's trying to see Jesus. He's trying to see him. He, he doesn't know him yet. He's heard of him. He's heard the, the rumors. He's trying to catch a glimpse of this man. But God made him short. And he can't see over the crowd. Perhaps the crowd, it would make sense to me, is, is pushing him out of the way. Elbowing him, you can't see this. They don't like him. They can't stand him. He's enemy number one. But he does something strange, something a rich man wouldn't normally do. Verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. A sycamore tree was a very beautiful tree, but it didn't grow very tall and was heavy branched, so it made for wonderful shade. But it was also easy for a short man to climb, and, and he's this outsider, partly because of his, his stature, but, but mostly because of his occupation. He was an outcast to what's happening. He was, he was set out, and so he climbs a tree to see so, friends, I, I just need to say this. If you're here this morning and you feel like an outsider today and you're not used to being at church and your experiences really kind of resonate with this, an outsider, you need to know that Jesus is very much for outsiders. All of us here this morning as Christians at various times have felt like outsiders until we understood how the Lord included us and how he's won us over and and brought us into the family of God. 
And what we read here now is Jesus going after the outsiders. He's very much interested in them. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, Zacchaeus, and said to him, excuse me, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Ultimately, what we read here is a divine appointment that God has sent. Zacchaeus didn't stop for Jesus. No, Jesus stopped for Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. Almost as if he's, he's known him since his birth. Jesus was on a divine mission. He had come to seek and save the lost, and Zacchaeus was lost. This is exactly what Jesus does. This is what we see him do over and over. He seeks the lost. He does it by walking right into our lives, even undivided. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, Christ does not leave it to ourselves to seek him or else would be left indeed. For so vile is human nature that although heaven be offered and though hell thunder in our ears, yet there never was and never will be any man who unconstrained by sovereign grace will run in the way of salvation and so escape from hell and flee to heaven. God seeks after us. And when God calls a sinner by the Holy Spirit, he does everything inside us that needs to be done for us to be saved. He convinces us that we're sinners. He teaches us who Jesus is. He changes our minds and our hearts so that we're ready to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. God is the one who saves, and Jesus now calls Zacchaeus and goes to his house. If you've been Catching with us in this, in this Gospel of Luke, on several occasions, Jesus has accepted the hospitality of others to go into their homes, but this is the only recorded instance where he invited himself to someone else's house. He is going after Zacchaeus personally. And the crowd here, friends, is a warning to us. Let's be careful of ever daring to assess whether someone is worthy of meeting God. When we feel someone else is unworthy of God, we actually insult the person and we insult God. When we think someone is unworthy of God, we throw that person away long before God would ever do that. And what we fail to understand is that salvation is for sinners. Salvation is for outsiders, for outcasts, for swindlers, for cheats. And Zacchaeus is exactly the kind of person that Jesus was looking for. And Jesus calls out to him and invites himself into his life. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Here is a a bold and moving confession of sin by Zacchaeus in an an act of repentance. He recognizes him as Lord. He recognizes his life has been spent in stealing and defrauding others. And he turns from that and he seeks to make things right. What we read here is a radical change has taken place in Zacchaeus' value system. 
He sees Jesus and he doesn't turn the other way like the rich ruler does earlier in chapter 18. No, instead he gives away his riches. Immediately what we read is salvation affects his wallet and repentance bears fruit. His life is changed. And so friend, for all those people that you know who call themselves a Christian but live just like the world, guess what? They are a liar and they're self-deceived. And they are confusing people about what the gospel is. When Zacchaeus follows Christ, his life changes. And the same for all Christians. It's not that we live perfectly from now on. No, it's that the priorities of our life have changed. How they view people, how they view money, how they view their life changes. It has to. Because salvation doesn't leave us the way we were. It, it makes us new. On the wall of President Lyndon Johnson's White House office hung a framed letter from, by General Sam Houston to Johnson's great-grandfather, Baines, more than 100 years earlier. Baines had led Sam Houston to Christ. Houston was a changed man, no longer coarse and belligerent, but peaceful and content. And the day came for Houston to be baptized, an incredible event for those who knew him. And after his baptism, Houston offered to pay half the local minister's salary. And when someone asked him why, he said, my pocketbook was baptized too. He was a changed man. And for his whole adult life, presumably, Zacchaeus had been a traitor to the household of Israel. But in this moment of confession and repentance, he becomes a true son of God. And God can call people away from their idols, a, a lifetime of sin and the habit of abusing privilege and position in others and turn those people to himself, making them new creatures that serve him and to love others. And in this very moment, Zacchaeus not only sees Jesus for the first time, he discovers his long-lost identity. He was a man loved by God with an eternal love. He realizes that God had sent his son to rescue the lost, and he was a lost sinner that needed rescuing. And Jesus does this personally by coming to his home, coming into his life. These, these last two stories of these two men serve as the conclusion of everything that we've read in chapter 18 like the infants brought to Jesus in, in 1815, this blind man and Zacchaeus have no merit on their own. Like the persistent widow in chapter 18, both men have to persist through many obstacles in order to see Jesus. Like the tax collector in 18.9, both of these men have absolutely no hope except to cry out to Jesus for mercy. And unlike the rich ruler in chapter 18, Zacchaeus joyfully gives away his earthly riches so that he will inherit heavenly riches. He repents of his life and embraces Christ. He sees Jesus. He sees what is offered to him, and he embraces him. You see how well Luke ties things up here? Well, then we come to our last verse this morning, verse 10, chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
Jesus came to save the lost. And that means he would have to seek them out. People are lost by definition. They do not know where they need to go. Spiritually, lost people cannot find their way to God. And so God has to come and find them. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He left the glory of heaven, all the comforts and riches of being with God the Father, and he humbled himself by becoming one of us. If the blind man illustrates one aspect of salvation, that it comes by faith when a person's eyes are opened by Jesus, then Zacchaeus illustrates the other aspect. Salvation comes to Zacchaeus when Jesus calls him and commands him to receive him. Zacchaeus was lost, and how could a man who was lost find his way into the kingdom then? He couldn't, of course, but he could be brought in, right? If someone was prepared to go and to seek for him, to bring salvation to him, and that's why Jesus came. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Friend, perhaps you've come this morning to to try out church and you and maybe your family is looking into Christianity, what Christians do, what we believe, why we meet on Sundays. Again, you're always welcome here. And I wonder now if this talk of lostness, what you think of that, do, do you consider yourself lost? Lost refers to all who have never been made new by grace through faith in Jesus. And Jesus is looking for you, too, friend. He's still seeking and saving the lost. So don't let the crowds push you away from him. Do everything in your own power to see Jesus. Don't let your pride or your misconceptions ruin your chances to see Jesus. Don't let your brokenness drive you deeper into lostness. The son gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and three days later God raised him from the dead for your justification. So friends, put your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin, of trusting in yourself and follow Jesus. If you have questions about that, I would encourage you to come find me or Pastor Chris at the service or any other of the elders. We would love to talk with you. And to all of you, friends, I Circling back to what we said at the beginning, I, I wonder what you've set your hopes on. You know, this is a crucial question for both you and I to answer this morning. Many, even most of our problems in lives come from attaching our hopes to things that were never made to bear the weight of them. And things that will like sink to the ocean floor like a, a, a rock sinks in water. And then we're attached to it. Some things in in life even hold out great promise in the beginning, but eventually prove to be a a passing fancy or or worse, a deadly pursuit. What we're pursuing right now in life, are you pursuing something that you're not quite sure will satisfy you like you hope it will? Where is your heart set this morning? We need to turn to God. We need to have our hopes set on him 
on Christ alone. He made us. He knows us. He knows where our hopes should be placed. So I want to encourage you, friends, to place your hopes there in Jesus. And we're going to sing of that as we end. So we'll sing of in Christ alone. Let me read just the first verse. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Would you join me in prayer? Father, what grace it is to be gathered with your church this morning in worship of you and what challenges we face when we're confronted with your word. What peace we gain by spending time gathered together in worship and sitting under the preaching of your word. And what mercy do we receive when we call out to you? God, teach us that we're lost and teach us this morning that we that you find us in, in Christ. May we live for Christ alone. Help us this week as we leave this place to honor and glorify you by all that we do. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.